Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. The Global Story with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown, and today in Focus on Africa, we are talking about a stinging letter Malawi's powerful Catholic bishops read out in churches over the weekend. But what does Bagamoyo have to do with it? When President Chakura was campaigning for power, he promised to take Malawians to the promised land of Canaan that is in the Bible. Now the bishops are saying that instead President Chakura and his administration have taken the country to Bagamoyo, the port in Tanzania, where in the past slaves used to be taken to. We've been discussing the prevalence of so-called child soldiers in African wars for a very long time now. So why does the problem persist? And I continue the conversation with Aisha, the medical student who fled Ukraine when the war broke out in 2022. She's in the Netherlands now, but her troubles are far from over. They started this whole, you have to leave again, you have to leave again. And we're like basically saying that you have no right to just be pushing us out. Where do you want us to go to? You can't possibly be pushing us to go back to Ukraine where people are dying. It's Tuesday, the 27th of February. When church leaders speak, people sit up and take notice. When they write swingingly critical letters and read them out from the pulpit, those in the pews are agog and it goes viral on social media. That's been the case in Malawi these last few days because the Episcopal Conference of Malawi, which is made up of eight Catholic bishops, wrote a 16-page letter called The Sad Story of Malawi and read it out in churches across the country this past weekend. The bishops are very influential, as are leaders of other denominations and religions. President Jaquera himself is a trained pastor and theologian. Much was made of that when he was elected. Now, four years later, the government and the president himself got a tongue lashing from the bishops. So were people surprised at the zinger from the men of the cloth? And what did the bishops say in that letter? Peter Jaguar is a journalist and longtime friend of Focus on Africa. He's been telling me more from Lilongwe. Well, they've basically said Malawi is witnessing a serious lack of credible and visionary leadership. And these are their words. And they've actually said this lack of leadership is the root cause of all problems that Malawi is facing. So very strong criticism coming from the church even by their own standards, I would think that it has come out as very, very strong indeed. I know that one of the criticisms is about the caliber and the provenance of people who are in different positions of power in Malawi. The accusation being that perhaps President Chakwera is appointing people that come from his part of the country. So it feels like an indirect or direct criticism or accusation of tribalism. But what else more specific than that? Well, they've also talked about how the fight against corruption 
is more or less looking lukewarm. I think their own words they said there is a make-believe attempt to want to be seen to be fighting corruption when in truth they are stifling the very institutions that are there to help fight against corruption. And you will remember, Audrey, corruption was in fact what the current administration campaigned on when when they're fighting for power. So for the bishops to point out that, uh, in fact, we're not doing well in the fight against corruption is a very big slight on um, President Chekwera and his administration. There's a particular reference to Bagamoyo, which people are talking about. What is that all about? Indeed, Bagamoyo has been added. is a new word in Malawi's political dictionary, if you like. When President Chakwera was campaigning for power back in 20, uh, we had elections in 2020, one of the things he said was that he, he promised to take Malawi and Malawians to uh, the imaginary promised land of Canaan, making reference to Canaan that is in the Bible. Because you know, Audrey, Malawi is, um, a lot of people are Christians, so they will be familiar with biblical stories. So there's a story of a promised land of Canaan, President Chakwera campaigned that he would take Malawians to Canaan. Now the bishops are saying that all those promises have been broken. Instead of taking Malawi to Canaan, President Chakwera and his administration have taken the country to Bagamoyo. Now, Bagamoyo is a port in Malawi's neighboring country in the north, Tanzania, where in the past, slaves used to be taken to. And the bishops are saying once slaves were taken to Bagamoyo, they completely knew that there was no hope of anything positive happening in their lives. So the accusation is that Malawi has not been taken to Canaan, as was being promised to campaign. Instead, it's been taken to Bagamoyo. And indeed, Bagamoyo is the buzzword that's being thrown around all over in social media and in Malawi political discussions. That's quite scathing. How has the government reacted? Well, rather unusually, the government has said, they will not be responding to every accusation that is contained in the pastoral letter. They say they have chosen instead to continue to engage the church privately and see if there is common ground where they can reach or have a discussion on what the church proposes the government should do and also have an an opportunity to explain to the church what they as government are doing. It's not unknown for the church to challenge the government in various ways in Malawi, but did this come out of the blue? Was it a surprise or were there particular events that led up to it? In terms of the contents, you cannot really say it is a surprise because they're raising issues that people talk about in social media on a daily basis. So to that extent, I wouldn't say that many Malawians would be surprised. What is a surprise, though, is the tone and the language that the bishops used. In the past, they've been very diplomatic, saying the same things, but in a nice kind of way. This time around, they've been very, very strong. Some of the language that they've used, the criticism, some of it sounding like it is directly aimed at the president saying we have repeatedly warned the leadership that poor governance would worsen if they do not take care of certain things and the government has not listened. Why do you think the tone has sharpened to the extent that it has? I am as surprised as uh, many other Malawians as to why this time around the 
Catholic bishops have chosen this route. That said, I think that the conditions living in Malawi at the moment is very, very hard. A lot of Malawians are complaining. The economic situation is dire. So I think I can speculate that the bishops really wanted to speak in a manner that they are seen to be the voice of the voiceless, to be speaking for the downtrodden. And uh, that is why they came up with very strong language to really show that they can see and maybe they can also feel the pain that most Malawians are feeling. It seems like it was particularly pointed at President Chakwera. Do you think that the promise that he made when he came to power, that he would change the culture of leadership in Malawi, that he would be a servant leader, and the bishops were particularly critical of that aspect of his administration. Do you think it's a tone of sorrow rather than anger, or is it anger that that perhaps, as far as they're concerned, he's been anything but a servant leader? Most of it is anger. You will remember, Audrey, that President Tekwera is himself a former preacher. He used to head the Malawi Assemblies of God before he went into politics. He sounded credible when he said that he would bring in a different way of leading the country, different kind of politics. So it's going to be a servant leader. To then come into power and do quite a lot of the things that he said he was going to change has been a very big disappointment, certainly on the part of most Malawians, but also, as we can see from the just-released pastoral letter, the bishops too have not been amused by the conduct of the leadership of President The letter talks about previous engagements between the church and the government, and the government spokesperson in response has also said that, you know, they will continue with the ways in which they've been talking and liaising with the church previously. So what sorts of interactions go on between the church and the government, or the president, in fact? Well, that is what a lot of Malawians are asking. The bishops have made it clear that they've had opportunities to have conversations with the president in the past and that those conversations have not had any fruits whatsoever. For the government spokesperson to now say today that they will be engaging with the church is rather strange. What exactly are they going to talk about that they have not talked about in the past? But for the rest of us, it's a waiting game. We'll have to wait and see if at all, this time around, they'll have more constructive conversations behind closed doors that will lead to changes, the changes that Malawians want and indeed the changes that the bishops have said they would like to see happen in Malawi. Peter Jaguar in Malawi. We are reaching back into our extensive archive for the next story. It's about child soldiers. Back in 1998, a BBC reporter met and spoke to children who had been involved in active combat during the war between the government and the Revolutionary United Front, or RUF, in Sierra Leone. That war was particularly brutal, with people's limbs being chopped off a standard procedure. The reporter later went back to speak to one of those children who was living with foster parents at the time. Were you with the RUF? Yes, of course, sir. How long for? So many years. How many years? I was with them for um, three years. What did you do there? Well, I was with them to fight with them. H- how old were you then? Well, by that time I was a small boy, eight years old. And um, what did you have to do with the RUF? Well, 
I was with them. They was used to send us to go and attack at various places. So did you did you fight? Yes, I fight for so many times. I was with them. I kill as many as I can. Child soldiers are still being recruited in Africa today. The government of the Central African Republic said that 10,000 children are fighting alongside armed groups there. The Minister of Family and Gender, Mart Kirme, said some 15,000 children who had escaped rebel forces are too traumatized to return to normal life. And it's not just in the Central African Republic. This young man in South Sudan was also recruited as a soldier. We saw a lot of soldiers having guns and abusing the civilian, the civil population around the area. The question is, who are these human beings, those who were having guns, because they can do anything? So we were having a feeling, if we can also get the guns, then we can be also be, be better powerful like them. Uh, definitely, I miss a lot. I miss my childhood friends. I also miss my parents, the love that they were giving me. I miss my village. I miss a lot. Professor Tukur Mohamed Baba is from the Federal University Birnin Kebi in Nigeria. How widespread is the use of so-called child soldiers? Well, the problem is widespread, but uh, of course it's most endemic. In West Africa, it used to be Liberia and Sierra Leone. But of course, with the achievement of relative peace in these two countries, it has gone down. But now it's endemic in the Sahelian countries, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and by some bandits in extreme northern Nigeria and northeastern Nigeria also, plagued by the Boko Haram conflict. That is for West Africa. Central Africa, of course, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, the Central Africa Republic, especially notorious. Then in the east of Africa, of course, Somalia, South Sudan, it's another in these two countries. I'm not sure about Ethiopia. If it's been, if they are being used by rebels in Ethiopia, I will not be surprised. Is it just boys or girls and boys that are inducted oh. or, 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 or dra- dragooned into, into fighting? Oh, yes, both boys and girls. Uh, estimate I, ro- I read last night from UNICEF. Since about 40% of uh, child soldiers worldwide are girls, and uh, they are mostly quote-unquote recruited for special services. I use that in a very loose and almost unacceptable terms. They are used as sex slaves, as cooks, quote-unquote wives, and I will talk about that in the case of Nigeria in particular, with which I'm very familiar are the ways in which children are dragged into fighting the same in you know in all these cases because we know notoriously in the Liberia and Sierra Leone you know it it was kidnapping in the Central African Republic the Democratic Republic of Congo the same thing does mm. it happen in the same way everywhere well no but they have certain commonalities each is informed by specific circumstances in general it's coercion in general, it's abduction and kidnapping. Simply rebels, insurgents, and fighting forces surround villages in particular. Abduct the girls and force them into forms of uh, slavery, so to speak, as sex slaves, as uh, cooks, 
and so on and so forth. In other places, especially the boys and the girls, go there for economic reasons. One, they are out of school. In Nigeria, we call them out of school children, though they are idle. And the economy is not doing very well. They are lacking in skills for employment. So it just presents itself as an opportunity for income. In some of the boundary-prone areas in Nigeria, we have witnessed that some parents give out their children, girls and boys, as a way out of poverty. These insurgents and bandits give them money and resources. So in other places, it's money, especially in the mineral-rich areas where the bandits control minerals and are able to provide income for extremely or desperately poor families. And they just look the other way and surrender the children. Uh, But most of the ones we know are forced abductions. Right. Are there cases where they would volunteer themselves, perhaps, because they're drawn to, you know, what looks like something that they could they could get money out of the adventure, as I said. Are there cases where that could happen? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the Boko Haram areas of northeastern Nigeria, we understand our research and have evidence that a lot of the boys join the insurgents because that's an avenue for teenagers to have free sex because they abduct women and children who are regularly raped. And those for those boys, is the adventure of free sex. Tell us a little bit more about yeah. what, 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 what else do they tell, tell you about their lives when they are living as child soldiers? In northeastern Nigeria, we have seen evidence where the ex-soldiers tell us that they have been indoctrinated with religious propaganda in the belief that they are doing so for God and for religion, for Allah, and that they are promised places in heaven. Some go against their parents because the parents are seen to be apostates. So they rebel against the parents. And then some of the children in the indoctrination process are forced to to unleash brutality on victims. This way they get used to violence. This way, you know, they, they just do it. And there's a lot of drug involved. Uh, a lot of them are involved in drug abuse. They smoke marijuana, they take uh, drugs and so on, hallucinating drugs. That uh, makes them impervious to pain or to suffering of other people. So they do un- unspeakable violence on uh, this. And they don't, feel, uh, they don't feel it. They tell us that they have been drugged. Others have been clearly indoctrinated to think they are doing it for God and religion. We found out a lot about the drug use and the sort of making them accomplices and complicit in extreme acts of violence, even against some of their own, their family and so on during the wars in Liberia and Sierra Leone. So, so those are standard practices, are they, to, to make children complicit and to bend them to the will of those that are turning them into child soldiers because they're not, I mean, they're children, aren't they? And calling them child soldiers is is kind of unfair because they're not deliberate, they, they're not volunteering. This is what's happening to them. Would, it's I being would, done I to would them. I call them conscripts, conscripts. They are people forced into that, you know, and certainly not again, not, uh, not willingly. Some by indoctrination, like I said, some by blackmail. The parents have been blackmailed. The children could be blackmailed. You are responsible for this, and this is the way you can atone. This is the way you can make up for certain shortcomings and so on. 
Why is it such a huge problem across the continent? Is it because many of the wars are what you would call asymmetric wars? They're not army to army. They're more insurgencies. They're more civil conflicts, unlike, say, what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, which, where, where it's a more formal army. Is it because is that the reason why it's so prevalent on the continent and why it's so intractable? Oh yeah, oh yeah. There is no doubt. There is no doubt about that. And at the bottom of it all, in the continent, is the rebellion. Obviously, part of it will go back to the colonial experience, drawing boundaries across natural communities in northwestern Nigeria. My favorite example is a street that passes through a village. And on one side is the former British territory. On the other side of the street, less than 10 meters, is French territories. However, those, because the boundaries of the state in much of Africa are still unstable, so it breeds a rebellion. Of course, there is the issue of mineral resources and the weak state caused by corruption at the highest level of government. So it's all about existential conditions that are breeding the rebellion, that are breeding the conflicts. And in turn, you have all these that are byproducts of the conflicts and the rebellion, control of the state, corruption at the highest levels of government. The state is simply unable to cater for the citizens in terms of the traditional role of the state. It's a complex set of problems, but they all revolve, in my estimation, around existential conditions. The, the, the situation is very bad. Professor Tukur Mohamed Baba from the Federal University, Birnin Kebi in Nigeria. It's two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. As the fighting intensified, millions of people were displaced then. Many of them fled, scattering to different parts of Europe. Among them were tens of thousands of foreign nationals, including many Africans studying at Ukrainian universities. We've been talking to some of those students. We began hearing Aisha's story yesterday. She is from Nigeria. Aisha had to leave everything behind in Sumi, where she was studying, to get to safety. On the way, Aisha and many others went through really traumatic experiences, being shot at, racially abused, leaving their lives behind, along with the Ukrainians who saw their country being destroyed, their beloveds killed. The Ukrainians were welcomed in most of the cities they went to. So was it the same for everyone else? Aisha escaped to Hungary, then Poland, and finally the Netherlands, where she is today. Okay, so you've got the pieces of your life to pick up. You are now in the Netherlands. Yeah. What happened then? How did you reestablish contact? Did you have to jump through many bureaucratic hoops to get yourself settled in the Netherlands? And why the Netherlands, Um, actually? I wanted to go to Ireland because I wanted to go to an English-speaking country because I thought it would be easier for me to pick up my life back, you understand? But if you basically do not have a... Ukrainian passport, they wouldn't accept you in, right? And that was what was happening in most of the countries, Canada, US, and all the other EU countries. So a couple of EU countries like Finland, Netherlands, Portugal, I mean, they really stepped up. So when I got to Netherlands, it wasn't any serious thing. Honestly, I really thought I'd gotten to, you know, mini heaven because they were so nice. 
I got to the place. They put me up in a room. I, at that point, I think I was the only one in the whole um, building, except the people that were working there. And they were doing this for people who had come from Ukraine. So it, it included yes. Ukrainians and people yes. like you, students. Third, yeah, right. exactly. Okay. So it was for everyone. This is why I said, oh, I mean, this seems like a mini, I mean, you get my point. Like they were so nice. You know, they registered me. And within a week, I got my uh, BSN. BSN is more like a social security security number, right? That's what you used to get a job, open a bank account. I got, I basically got settled by maybe 10th of July and I got there ending of June. So basically less than two weeks, right? I was situated. So all so, the anxiety mm-hmm. that you felt, all the fear that you felt, all the concerns, I take mm-hmm. it, I imagine you were feeling okay. I can find my feet around here, look around, reestablish, yeah, continue I with my studies. Yeah, I would say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only thing I felt was a little bit of relief because I thought, okay, I'm settled in a country that is and is closer to Ukraine than my home country in case any I need to get back. Right. right. So, okay. So, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. that ease that you felt, that relief, it seems oh, like it was very much short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> So I got situated maybe 10th of July, right? By the 20th of July, I think I was already working so that I can also contribute to a country and I'm not a freeloader. And by September, they started sending us letters. You're going to have to leave the country by March 2023 because that was the extension we gave to you guys. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't really think much of it at that point because I felt, oh, if you're going to cancel it, then that means you must be sure that the war was going to end. Because you you cannot be asking me to go back to Ukraine because they said it there that you'd go back to Ukraine or any country out of the EU. They didn't really care, right? So were they saying this to everybody that had come from Ukraine no, or just to the to the people who were no, not Ukrainian? No, I I did think okay, this is going to apply to all of us. Only for us to receive another letter after the publication saying specifically that it did not include us and we had to leave. You understand? That must have been really time. shocking and upsetting. Yes. Yes, it was. It was that. That's that was where, like, you know, mental stress started again. I can't go back to Nigeria, right? I didn't come from Nigeria. I'd lived in Ukraine for the past six years. I, I mean, I was born in Nigeria, but I didn't come to Netherlands from Nigeria. Yeah, I was going I to ask it. you why Nigeria wasn't an option at that point. Yeah, then. but yeah. I, I suppose you wanted to stay close to uh, Ukraine so that you yes. could continue your studies. And it wasn't just that. So mm. I think a year prior or Two, it wasn't long before the war started. There was this uprising in Nigeria called the End SARS movement, where our own government was shooting at citizens, the young people in the country, right? Because they dared to protest because we were being harassed by our own police. So people decided to protest. You can't keep doing this to people who were tax paying citizens. And they started shooting. So how did that that affect your decision about going back to Nigeria? Were you afraid? It did affect my decision. Yes, because I thought I cannot go back to my country where, I mean, the government that is supposed to protect us, right, is literally after our lives. Right. Okay. So Nigeria is out Mm -hmm. of the question. You're in the Netherlands. I believe Mm -hmm. that uh, the stress of being there affected Mm -hmm. you really badly. Of course it did. So um, so the mental stress began. They started this whole, you have to leave again, you have to leave again. And we're like basically saying that you have no right to just be pushing us out. Where do you want us to go to? Right. You cannot be 
you can't possibly be pushing us to go back to Ukraine where people are dying. At least that's what you're portraying in the media. So what are you doing? Then we decided to go to court. We hired our lawyers and we decided that we were going to actually fight this. So where it stands is, according to the judgment, we can stay till March 2024. But the bone of contention is, even if we're going to leave March 2024, right, why why did you feel, feel the need to try to illegally terminate our rights earlier on? Let's talk about what your options are now. You must be really yeah, worried. I am. I am. I am. Um, I mean, the stress that we've gone through from Ukraine to here to everywhere, I mean, it has caused for me to have like a really, you know, serious health scare that I had to have a major surgery. I just did the surgery in January, right? On the 17th of January. So I'm still healing, basically. So I really don't know what to do. And uh, there are many other students, right, in the same position that you are? Yeah, I would assume so. And your health, how is it now? I mean, I'm getting better. At least it's not as bad as it was before. So we thank God for that. Yeah. Which city are you in the Netherlands? Uh, I, I would not like to disclose that, please. Sorry. All right. <laughs> yeah. So two years on from the mm-hmm. war, it's still going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Do you watch it on the news? Do you follow what's going on in Ukraine? Of course I do. My documents are there. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel? How do you see feel, when you when, feel, when you see it all, when you see mm-hmm. the suffering, when you see the war continuing? For us third country nationals, like they call us because I mean that's how they see us. They see us like freeloaders, right? Even though we work, we pay taxes also, right? So I feel terrible that they still treat us like less than human. Right? Why do you have to treat us in such an inhumane manner? We all went through the same war. My life worth of six years, my, I don't even want to think about my material things, but my documents, right? I, my parents spent millions for me to be able to go to, to the best schools. You know, it's really sad to see that we have to, you know, keep on suffering. They still have to keep us putting us on the back burner, even though we are pulling our weights in this country, right? It's really unfair. I think it's really unfair. And I feel like we really do need compensation. Since September of 2022 till now, I haven't had one minute of peace. Aisha from Nigeria. We did contact the Dutch government about cases like Aisha's. They sent us this statement, and I quote, For third country nationals with temporary resident permits in Ukraine, the right to the temporary protection ends after March the 4th, 2024. They are obliged to leave the Netherlands within 28 days after this date. The majority of third country nationals who fled Ukraine can, in principle, return to their country of origin. If the third country national fears violence or prosecution in their country of origin, they can apply for asylum here. The Dutch government said it understands that the current situation can cause stressful situations for those who've received a note from the immigration services and advises that they can see a health care provider for psychological support. Focus on Africa was put together by Sunita Nahar, Anur Abida and Rob Wilson. Paul Bachibinga is the Oga at the top. Our technical producer was Johnny Hall. Alice Mudengi and Andre Lombard are the editors. I'm Audrey Brown. We'll talk again next time.
For just as long as Hollywood has been Tinseltown, there have been suspicions about what lurks behind the glitz and glamour. And for a while, those suspicions grew into something much bigger and much darker. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm Una Chaplin, and from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service, this is Hollywood Exiles. It's about a battle for the political soul of America, and the battlefield was Hollywood. Search for Hollywood Exiles wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.